Today we find ourselves in Acts 15. Many of you know the name Kirk Cousins. He's an NFL quarterback. And he has a, I guess you could call it a sculpture, a deal outside of his, of his house. It kind of has an, an odd purpose. It reminds him that he's going to die. That's why he has this. Uh, he hopes to live to 90. And in this sculpture is a jar that has 720 stones. Each stone represents a month of his life. And each month, he takes a stone from the jar, and he carries it with him. This is said about him, that every month he's going to take out a stone, put it in his pocket, and think, once this month is over, this is gone, you can't get it back, it's gone for good. Now, you might think it's a little morbid, but actually, he learned this in a Bible study, uh, and he was going over the passage in Psalm 90.12 that said, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Cousin says that this is about the importance of leaving a mark and making a deposit in people's lives in a way that matters. In other words, you have an understanding that life is coming to an end someday and that we only have so many days. There's wisdom in that. Well, you know what? It matters not if it's a jar with rocks or it's a mark on your calendar. We all have to be intentional, do we not? That we are a part of the kingdom of God and we want to make a contribution that will impact eternity. Amen? We're all on board with that. If you're not, I hope you will be after the end of this sermon. It seems that the Apostle Paul... Now, maybe he didn't have a jar of rocks, but he remembered very well that life was short and his life was to make an impact. As an introduction to the second of his three missionary journeys, we read this about the Apostle Paul. This kind of hints at his motivation for going on the second journey. He says this, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of God and see how they are. You can only grow and equip people when they have a steady diet of the word of God and they have the opportunity for life-giving fellowship. We see that reflected in this verse. Uh, he was going to visit the brothers and sisters in every city. He wanted to be with them and see how they are. How are you going to see how somebody is? You, you're in conversation. You're in relationship. You're close up, okay? That's taking place. And then we're going to proclaim the word of God. He was interested in equipping them. He was interested in their spiritual health. He was interested in their willingness to follow and obey Jesus. And he wanted to be with them. He didn't just leave them after they came to Christ. He was going to follow them up and equip them to serve Christ. It's a great model for us in equipping and empowering people. Equipping and empowering people. As I read this verse and I was thinking over it, I was asking myself, have we abandoned this concept as a church? And I'm not just speaking of all 
the churches, but here at Christ Community. And when I speak of the church, I don't, I'm not trying to say that, we you know, we've got it all together and, you know, all the other churches are doing it wrong. I'm not saying that at all, right? We have beautiful churches in the area, so I'm not saying, you know, we're doing it better than anybody else. So I'm just asking the question. Let's focus on ourselves. Are we following the model that Jesus gave to make disciples? Now, you can usually tell, or usually able to answer this question by knowing the metric at which we evaluate ourselves, that we evaluate our church. I mean, if somebody asks you, how's your church doing? First thing that comes to your mind is usually the number of people that's there, the money that's in the bank, and new buildings or the buildings that are there. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. I'm not saying that. I mean, these measurements are a factor to consider because we're to be good stewards of all that God has given us. So if we said, well, numbers don't matter, then you're not going to have systems and you're not going to make preparation to deal with the people you have. I mean, how you deal with 400 people is different than how you deal with 100 people. So the numbers matter, right? So I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But the point is... Don't you think that God might use another measurement when evaluating the health of a church? It intrigues me when I look at the life of Jesus because, you know, he spent three and a half years on earth, 33 years on earth, but three and a half of those ministering in his public ministry. And he dealt with the multitude, the crowds. You know, he did a lot of preaching and he spent time with his disciples and he did all that. And at the end of his life, there were no buildings. There was no money in the bank. There were 120 desperate people in a room praying, asking for God to do something. Desperate for a change. Now, we know that the crowd loved it when Jesus healed them. I mean, when he could do a miracle, a paralyzed man, a blind man, man, people would flock This is awesome to see all this. And we read of the multitudes gathering around to hear him preach. And at times, you know, remember he did it more than once where he'd feed people with just a a handful of food, a couple fish and loaves of bread. And he fed thousands. And you're like, whoa, that is cool. I want to ride that train, right? But when Jesus ramped up the talk about obedience and the cost of discipleship, the multitude scattered. Would you agree with me that the crowd is fickle? And we are naive to think that it's different when they're inside a church building. And by the way, it doesn't matter the size of the congregation. So I'm not talking about, you know, those big ones. I'm talking about us. In fact, we would be, we're bigger than 80% of the churches in America, so we'd be considered a big church. So I, I don't, I'm not dogging the other people. Let's just apply it to us. What do we talk about amongst ourselves when we assess CCC? Now, I know publicly we'll say, well, you know, the most important thing is spiritual health. Yes. Mm, thank you for that. But deep down... Maybe tell another people or deep down you're hoping, love that building. If we could just get this many people, right? Are we, are we excited to see obedience in others? Are we excited to see 
Christians reproducing in terms of other, making other disciples? Now, I know this church does a good job of reproducing, that's for sure. We've got so many kids. You don't, I don't worry about that. It's the spiritual reproduction I'm talking about, all right? <laughs> I mean, listen, if gathering a large group and having money is the gauge of spiritual success, then, you know, Beyonce and the Foo Fighters are heading up the largest revivals in America right now, okay? But I think we have a sense that there's got to be more to it than that. Crowds gather for a number of reasons. I mean, you, you can have a crowd slow down and watch a wreck on the highway. Maybe it's because people relish in the demise of others. I don't know. Scholars tell us that when Jesus was arrested in the garden, it says a multitude came that there were probably 500 to 1,000 people who followed Judas to see Jesus arrested. A multitude gathered before Pilate to declare that Jesus was guilty and to scream for his crucifixion. I mean, crowds can desire and do evil things, and being in a church building does not sanctify them. What sanctifies is trust in the gospel, and what makes one holy is being obedient to Jesus Christ, not the geography of a person being inside a church. And discipleship that does not require obedience is an imposter to an authentic Christian life. So what Paul brought to the churches was the word of God. It's like, hey guys, here's the pathway. Here's the roadmap to obedience. What can I do to help you? It was all about giving them whatever they needed in this Christian life to equip and empower them to expand the kingdom of God. What can I do to help Paul understood there's a difference between a multitude and making disciples. It's not to say the multitude's not important. Jesus loved the multitude. Jesus wept over the multitude. Jesus spoke to the multitude. Paul, same thing. But his primary job was to build disciples. And not to create a three-ring circus to appeal to the crowd. The Bible makes a clear distinction between disciples and the multitude. I mean, just look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And you see this distinction being made. For instance, in Matthew then Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion on the crowd. Matthew 23, 1, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Notice, like addressing two different groups. And then Mark, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd. Luke 6, 17, and he, Jesus, came down with him, and he stood in the plain in the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of Judea and Jerusalem. And then in Luke 7, 11, and it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. Again, you have crowds, 
and then you have disciples. You have a lot of people that can gather together. Nothing wrong with that, right? But the job of the church is to make disciples. And having a lot of people in the church does not mean you're making disciples. We have to be intentional about equipping. You know what else we have to be cognizant of? That when you do this, you will lose people. Because when you call people to obedience in their families, in their relationships, in their sexual ethics, and with their money, and with their service to others, people don't like that. When you challenge people this way, the crowd will scatter. It's not to say that all large gatherings of Christians are not doing this. It's just to say a large gathering of Christians is not the sign that it's being done. So two different things. See, when you, when you call people to obedience, you weed out the spectators from the disciples. Paul was not satisfied with just having a big crowd. He was not satisfied with just getting people converted. He went back to these same churches, these same people, and he's giving them the word of God. You know, when we look at the situation about making disciples, I'm really talking to us, the church. I'm not blaming people for being who they are, people, right? Or the crowd or the masses, they're just going to be who they are. But has the church done all it can do? And by the church, I mean leadership. I mean me. And I mean our leaders in making disciples. Because we're all given a mandate to equip, to empower, to disciple. You know, Paul was intent. It's this thing that amazes me. He was intent on stepping right back into the same cities that tried to stone him. Now imagine that. Paul went right back to the places that stoned him and he's, and he's wanting to minister to these people and give them the word of God. That's how committed he was to this equipping thing and making disciples. How committed are we to making disciples? To see, as verse 36 says, to see how the believers are. Are we saying yes to the hard things? Now, I can't see the hearts of every single person. Neither can you. I'm not, I don't want to judge every single person. I can't do that. But we can see some of the fruit. And we have to be willing to ask ourselves the question of what's the difference between a spectator and a disciple? Are people just content just to show up in a building and say, I did my Christian thing? Or are they really serious about being a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ? Because there's a, there's a big difference. Let me just throw out a few ways we might be able to differentiate. Uh, spectators will often dismiss doctrine. Oh, we see this in the churches. You know, get rid of sections of the Bible. It's just not important. We'll often dismiss doctrine. Disciples are intent to live out good doctrine. And by doctrine, I mean just understanding the principles from the word of God. They are eager to learn it. They are eager to do it. 
Uh, spectators love to go to Bible studies, and they love to hear nice stories. Disciples are intent on understanding the scriptures to obey Christ. Spectators don't mind at all being kind to those that are kind to them. But disciples love their enemies, and they lay down their life for one another. You know what spectators do? They can, they can wear crosses. They can even cry when they see Jesus in the Passion movie, die on a cross. Oh, they're moved by it. But disciples, they bear the cross daily by dying to self. Big difference. Spectators. There's a difference between a guy in the stands and a guy that's actually on the court grabbing rebounds, passing the ball. Spectators and disciples. Spectators will give what's left over. Disciples are willing to sacrifice any possessions for the sake of the kingdom. It's not mine, it's his. He can do, he can do whatever he wants with it. Uh, spectators will only oblige when they agree with something, when it aligns with their desires. All right, I'll do that, Jesus. But disciples say, not my will, but yours be done. And don't think that it was easy for Jesus. In the garden, he's there to take that cup that was bitter. It was representative of the sin of mankind, and he knew up ahead was a cross. He's going to be tortured. He's going to die. If there's any way, Lord, that this cup can pass from me, you know, I wouldn't object. But no, the father still wanted him to go forward, and he obeyed. He always said yes to his heavenly father. But he was tempted, but he always said yes. Spectators, you know what they yearn for? They yearn for inspirational leaders to encourage them to get their best life now. Disciples are more concerned about producing servant leaders. They're willing to be challenged. They're willing to be admonished for the sake of being conformed to the image of Christ. Is it naive for us to think that every single person who shows up to Christ Community Church is a disciple? Probably. So if they're not, then what are we going to do about it? Well, we certainly can't sit and do nothing, right? I can't speak for every church in Springfield or every church in America or every church in the world, but, you know, I might be able to affect a little bit of change here. And I'd rather fail at several ways that we're trying to make disciples than settling for the status quo. There's a temptation for any pastor, any leader, and for us, all of us, to just make sure we're happy, make sure everybody's filled and happy, and we're never made uncomfortable. See, the, the American church has created a culture of spectators. You, you ask about churches in America. We have to have music a certain way, right? We have to have worship a certain style. We have to have children's ministry cranking on all cylinders. And pastors have to look cool and tell funny stories. Now, you could add some other things to that, and, but you, you get the idea, right? It's why I know of several pastors who've given up with 
the typical evangelical church, and they're just starting to meet in a house with people who are serious about following Christ. Now, I haven't given up the idea that I think a, a larger church can, can function in a healthy manner, but I get it. And it's, it seems a little bit easier when you jump off the conveyor belt of American evangelicalism and just sit down with a few people. That is easier in some ways. It certainly brings some clarity. I appreciate and love that at CCC we have a staff, we have elders, and we have a congregation that's interested in discipleship. And the fact is it runs counter Many times it runs counter, not only to the American culture, but to the church culture. I mean, going through the Bible verse by verse, that's boring to a lot of people, okay? I heard a very well-known pastor say recently, don't do this expository verse by verse preaching because people will leave. I love the fact that we feature worship that is biblically sound, authentic, and not showy. That's on purpose. I love that we can demand that our relationships amongst our leaders be genuine instead of just manufacturing production while we stink at community. I, I laugh when I hear of pastors say this or people say they're pastors. You know, this is my pastor. He's not very good with people, but he's a good pastor. What? You know, a mechanic does not know how to use a wrench, but he's a good mechanic. Listen, you stink at relationships. You stink at being a pastor because that is part of the job. It's much more than just administration. You are a shepherd. You are to love people. You are to relate to people in depth and influence people through one of your primary assets which is relationships. We have to be cautious to not get sucked into all the cultural expectations that distract us from our main mission. And again, I want to say it again. I don't fancy ourselves that we got it all down. I just want to, I want to be fair to you and that I think we really are, have made great strides we're doing great in, in a lot of areas, but we've also got room to grow, right? Maybe in response to this verse, verse 36 of Paul doing what he was doing, may I suggest an application for all of us? And I say this to me because, listen, I get tempted and I, I realize, oh, maybe the reason I made that decision was because I just want people to be happy. It's a it's a real temptation. But we have to reject the notion that Christianity must be easy and exciting and it has to fit our tastes. This is, I think, the biggest temptation for us in the church today. That Christianity has to be easy, exciting, and it has to fit my tastes. Newsflash. We don't get everything we want. You don't get everything you want in your marriage. You don't get everything you want in your family. You don't get everything you want on your job. That's life. And it's especially the Christian life. When you find your desires conflicting with the will of God. 
Who wins? Well, the disciple says, not my will, but his will be done, right? It's really one of the best lessons we can teach our children when it comes to Christianity especially. You don't get everything you want. So what does faithfulness look like here? What does obedience look like here? What is, what is putting your trust in Christ here? What does that look like? When you're not getting everything you want. There's a law professor and technology expert by the name of Tim Liu, L-U. He claims there is an underestimated force that drives our daily lives. I want you to listen closely to this. The greatest force that drives our daily lives. You know what it is? Convenience. He says we want nearly everything about our lives to be convenient, efficient, and easy. He calls convenience the most powerful force shaping our individual lives and our economies. The most powerful force shaping our lives. Now, what's the impact for the church with that? He writes, as Evan Williams, a co-founder of Twitter, recently put it, convenience decides everything. Convenience seems to make our decisions for us, trumping what we like to imagine are our true preferences. I prefer to brew my coffee, but Starbucks Instant is so convenient, I hardly ever do what I prefer. Easy is better. Easiest is best. Of course, there are benefits to some of life's conveniences, but he also warns that there can be a dark side. Lou argues that with its promise of smooth, effortless efficiency, it threatens to erase the sort of struggles and challenges that help give meaning to life. Created to free us, it can become a constraint on what we are willing to do, and thus, in a subtle way, it can enslave us. When we let convenience decide everything, we surrender too much. Again, I don't know if this guy's a Christian, but that's a message all Christians need to absorb. And our application for us at Christ Community Church is to always choose obedience, to always choose the way of discipleship, and not worry about whether the culture is going to approve or how it fits within evangelicalism. You know, people have often asked me about going to a Christian college or a secular college, and I say a lot of times, honestly, I wouldn't recommend a Christian college. You know why? Because people are going to naturally just be attracted to a lukewarmness. Where you go to a secular school, you're going to sink or swim. You're going to be hot or cold. There's not much room for lukewarmness on a secular campus. You'll be laughed out of the classroom. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to a Christian college, but I just gave you that nugget for free. You don't have to pay extra for that. You know, our elders have talked <clears throat> the last couple months about creating more opportunities for CCC to be equipped. And by the way, you know, I think there are things going on now that we're trying to do that and, and make disciples. I take eight to ten men every year and do that for the last several years. Um, and there are other ways in which that's taking place. But we've had a couple meetings with some key leaders talking about what this might look like and maybe utilizing a Wednesday evening that we're not in our life groups to do something in which we could further provide equipping opportunities. I don't know what it's all going to look like, 
but I would concur with verse 36 of Acts 15. We will proclaim the word of the Lord and see how the saints really are. Well, verse 37 starts a different kind of story, although related. And I think it should get our attention. But if we look back, we realize the last several weeks we've been talking about this meeting at the Jerusalem Council. And there was a group of Jews who had converted to Christianity who were interested in having parts of Judaism be required in order for people to become Christians, particularly Gentiles. So they were saying you had to be circumcised along with believing the gospel in order to be a Christian. And so they had a meeting that was convened in Jerusalem with church leaders And they discussed this. They gave an opportunity for some of those that kind of veered into this legalism. All right, make your case. And then they had others get up and speak. And at the end of the day, they decided to go not the legalistic way, but to allow believers who believe the gospel, Jew and Gentile, to come to Christ unencumbered by these requirements. Smart move, I think. And frankly, I think it was a shining moment, not only for how those leaders handled themselves and giving value even to these Jewish believers and letting them make their case, but also in standing strong in the way of grace. And then they, they wrote a letter summarizing their decision. The letter was sent around to different cities and different Christians, and the scriptures tell us, that they rejoiced, they were joyful and encouraged by this decision that was made. So it was a a shining moment for the early church. And then, days later, two of the leading church leaders start arguing So real to life, is it not? In fact, verse 39 talks about a sharp disagreement. That means an intense emotional turmoil. They were provoking one another. It was a hot argument. At the tail end of this great victory between Barnabas and Paul, there was an argument. If you're not familiar with the story, it was about a guy named Mark who went with him on the first missionary journey. He bailed. Barnabas wanted to take him on the second journey, and Paul said, no way am I going to let that guy go who quit on us go again. Well, they had this hot argument. And I love that the Bible does not skirt the issue. It just lays it out there in black and white. It deals with the tough issues. I think there are some things for us to learn here. One is that godly men can have disagreements. It just seems so fascinating to me that those who were championing grace at the Jerusalem Council days later could not express grace in their private relationships. And you have church leaders who, you know, are just a horse's patoot with their family members. You can write that down, patoot, all right? (laughs) They're jerks at work. In their private relationships, but they'll espouse, you know, grace, Jesus, 
But then over here, they just somehow miss the connection of how they're to respond. It's amazing that God used two imperfect men to do his work. And before I point fingers, I think of the same thing of me. It's amazing that God would use us. And you're saying, well, we think it's amazing God uses you too because we can't believe it. I get it. Listen, we all have experiences where we've been hurt, where we've had conflicts, right? There's much to learn here. Paul and Barnabas. I actually take a side. I think that uh, someone was right in this conflict, and we'll talk about that next week.